Before we come to this passage again, let's pray that God would speak to us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you have given us your word um, to teach us about yourself and to teach us about ourselves. And Father, as we come to this, I pray that you would speak to us, that we would come with open hearts and open ears to receive from you. And Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many of us, I'm sure, have either been the initiator of a conversation about Jesus or we've been on the receiving end of it. So many of these conversations are great. They're interesting, they're thought-provoking, they're even transformational sometimes. And then some of them last about three and a half seconds. It's so awkward when they just get shut down. But the reality is that many people just aren't interested in Christianity. And I was that person at one time who shut them down, so I can't even be mad about it either. If you were to look around at a family gathering or in your workplace and think, who is the most likely to become a Christian here? You're maybe thinking, oh, well, it's probably Philip because he's been going to church for quite some time now. Or maybe it'll be Kira because she's been asking lots of questions about Christianity recently. And you think that because on the flip side of that question, you knew that there are others who are totally uninterested. You know some people who will actively shut down that conversation about Christianity. And then you know some as well who just live a lifestyle which is so far removed from the Christian lifestyle. And maybe you even see yourself as that person, the least likely to come to Jesus in this room. Now let's take a minute to address that a lot of us have probably heard this passage preached several times or at least are pretty familiar with this story. And I hope for some of you that that's not the case because this is an incredible passage to go through for the first time. But even those of us who have heard it plenty of times, I want you to hear what Paul has to say about it first in 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 to 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Do you see what Paul is saying there? This passage is an example for us. And now I'm always very cautious of saying that it's us because I don't want to read ourselves into a passage where the context doesn't apply to us. But this is what Paul is saying here. The very reason that he was shown mercy, this man who was dead in his sins with no signs of coming to Christ was so that you would see that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so that you would see his patience with those who haven't yet come to faith in him. This passage isn't just for believers, it could be for any one of us. It's important for any of you who have, or any of you who will, come to faith in Jesus. 
this conversion story is for you, according to Paul. And so what I think Paul might want you to know then from Luke's account here in Acts. Well, the first thing that I think he wants us to know is that our condition before conversion is bleak. Our condition before conversion is bleak. And now at face value, that is a very depressing thought to start off with. Our culture doesn't really like this idea of recognizing our shortcomings. We hear lots of things like, oh, you're perfect just the way you are, or that you're absolutely good enough. But in reality, all of us know that actually we're not perfect. We know that we mess up and we don't even meet our own standards, never mind the gods who requires perfection because he's holy and righteous and just. We just can't achieve that. And it's not just you, it's everyone. And if all of humanity then aren't good enough to meet God's standards, then surely there must be a solution which is outside of ourselves. Surely there's a solution outside of ourselves. Saul shows us our condition before conversion is bleak very clearly from his outward actions. We've been following him for a bit now in the story of Acts and in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. Uh, The witnesses, they laid their garments at his feet as he oversaw the operation. And then just a few verses later, in chapter 8, verse 3, we read of his mission, and it says he was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Paul was a fierce opponent to this Christian movement. He needed to stamp out this message of Jesus offering salvation by grace alone. And we read here in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, it should be on the next slide, that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This man might show very clearly from his outward actions that he's an unlikely convert. But Romans actually tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians then goes even further than that and it says actually we're dead in that sin. Not just slowly dying and need to get better. No, he says that we are dead in it and totally unable to save ourselves. We might look at Saul and think how unlikely a convert he is. But we all naturally reject Jesus, no less than Saul did. Rejection is rejection, whether you show that outwardly or inwardly. If we are Christians here today and we are appalled that God would show forgiveness for the kind of things that Saul did, standing by as a leader in the stoning of Stephen, pulling people away from their homes because of their faith, If we are appalled that God would forgive that, then we haven't really understood the gospel because we were just as dead in our sin, just as undeserving of such grace. All of us have that same bleak condition before conversion, and that's exactly the reason that we need somebody else to step in and achieve our salvation for us. My next point then is that Jesus shows us overflowing grace in himself. He shows us overflowing grace in himself. Have a look with me at verses three to six. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Do you see what happens there? I don't know if there's a clearer example of Jesus initiating our salvation in this passage. Saul isn't even on the search for a savior here or even trying to work out uh, or trying to understand Christianity better. He's not doing that, actually. He's on his way to stamp it out. But what happens instead of him getting to fulfill that mission is that the risen Jesus stops him in his tracks and he says, why do you persecute me? And he reveals himself to be this Jesus who's transformed the lives of many and yet has been persecuted by Saul. This is such mercy that he shows Saul not to just strike him dead because he'd pretty good grounds to punish him. But that's just not the business of Jesus. Instead, he shows him overflowing grace mentioned in 1 Timothy 1. He doesn't just show him mercy, he actively shows him grace. He reveals himself so the evidence is so overwhelming that Paul just can't ignore it anymore. And more than just giving him good evidence, he's going to actually apply that to Paul. He's going to regenerate him or save him or cause him to be born again, whatever way you want to phrase it, because he isn't interested in getting people to just realize that he's real and that he exists. Even Satan knows that. He wants relationship with his people. And so we, what we need is not Jesus to just give us evidence that he exists. We need him to save us, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And I, I'm aware that not everyone here wears glasses, but I'm fairly sure even those of you who have the potential to be a pilot can probably entertain this thought for a minute because I think just about everyone with glasses does it. You know when you take your glasses off and you very dramatically say, oh my goodness, I'm so blind, just because things get a little bit fuzzier? Well, I think that might be the kind of illustration that we have in our heads whenever we think about people who haven't yet come to Jesus. Like that they maybe just need to squint a little bit harder to get the sharper picture. That they need to just put in a bit more work. Or that they maybe just need to get a bit closer and then they'll see the detail that they've missed. But that's not the picture that Jesus gives here to Saul or anyone else in that, for that matter. No, instead Jesus gives him a more accurate depiction of the spiritual darkness that he's been living in. And he makes him blind for three days. Have a look in your Bibles at verses 8 to 9. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You want to know how clearly you were seeing spiritually? Well, I think blindness for three days should probably get the point across. He was hopeless to see the truth of the gospel by himself. But again, this isn't necessarily bad news because we already mentioned that if, if it was up to us, then we'd be in a pretty dire situation. We'd be in a pretty dire situation if the answer was for us just to then sort ourselves because we can't. 
And Jesus doesn't stop Saul in his tracks and offer him an external source to go and find somewhere else. He actually offers himself. He doesn't just come to Saul, ask a provoking question, and then say, okay, Saul, you go and find the answer. Jesus is the answer himself. This is staggering. Like This is his persecutor standing in front of him. And yet he's not just coming to him as the initiator of his salvation, but he's coming to him as his personal savior, as the answer himself, the way, the truth, and the life. Why would you do anything to save the ones who reject you? And the only logical explanation that I can come to is that if it's out of sheer love. In the next few verses then, a man named Ananias is called to go to this man, Saul. And naturally, he's pretty apprehensive about visiting a man who wants to put him in prison. But have a look then at verses 15 to 18. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Now what happens here is a physical miracle, yes. He regains his sight. But its purpose is to show the greater spiritual miracle which goes alongside it. And if I haven't emphasized the spiritual realities which are going on in this passage sufficiently, then I don't think I've done this passage justice. The grace shown here is that Jesus brings him from death to eternal life. He is filled with the Holy Spirit as a seal of his salvation, proving that Christ's death on his behalf was sufficient. This persecutor is now a child of God. He's opened his eyes to see the truth of the gospel. If you're here and you're wondering if your sins are too significant, you need to reflect on this passage. Here's 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 16 again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is Paul speaking. Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. This was a man whose sins don't get much more obvious. It was like the middle finger in Jesus' face, and yet he was shown mercy. If we could grasp the extent to which Christ saves, he saves to the uttermost. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He came to save sinners. And if Saul's conversion doesn't show you the depth of that, then I don't know what will. If you think that you've rejected Jesus too long, 
or that your sins are just unforgivable or even that you just aren't the type of person that usually becomes a Christian, then would you look at Saul here as an example? He was shown mercy so that you can see that the offer is for you too. My final point then is that salvation is always accompanied by transformation. I don't know if you've seen any of these new coffee bars. I think there's going to be one on the screen. Yep, there they are. But they're popping up all over the show, and I quite like the idea of them, actually. Um, But what they do is they basically convert these old horse trailers into coffee bars. But if somebody told you that they were going uh, to convert one of these, and then you went up to this hatch only to find a horse and some hay in it, you'd be pretty puzzled, wouldn't you? You expect there to be some kind of transformation with it. If they say that they're going to convert it, then you expect it to probably have a different purpose. You expect it to maybe look different on the inside and have a bit of the owner's own stump on it. And what we see then in verses 15 to 16 of our passage is that Saul's conversion, his salvation, is accompanied by this transformation. See, his old mission, as we read in chapter 8, was to ravage the church, to stamp out this message of the gospel. And yet here he's given a new purpose. Have a look at verse 15 to 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He's a witness now to his saviour and a proclaimer of the good news. And it's not an easy task because actually Jesus says that Paul is going to suffer for his name. But we see that in the rest of Acts and in the New Testament that he is prepared to live for Jesus. He's prepared to suffer for Jesus. And when he fulfills that mission, what we see is that in a very real way that this man has had a remarkable transformation. Even within this passage, actually, the same mouth that was breathing out murderous threats in verse 1 then lifts up prayers to God in verse 11. And the man who would use his hands to take hold of Christians as prisoners then submits to God taking hold of him and has Christian hands laid on him in the process in verse 17. When we become a Christian, we want and we need transformation. And God will stop at nothing less than a complete transformation because it is for your good and for his glory. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting rid of the drains. He's getting the drains right, sorry, and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Romans chapter 8 verses 29 to 30 summarize it well. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, he's in the business of making you more like his son. And then verse 30, it says, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified or saved. And those he justified, he also glorified. Justification or conversion or salvation or whatever you want to call it is just part of the glorious chain of events which happens for believers. This is the same group of people in each step. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, all of those who come to Christ will be transformed continually until the day that we go to glory and receive the full inward beauty of holiness. And that is an incredible truth. There's no caveats of if we hold on tight enough or anything like that, because God has a firm hold on us. Let's circle back then to our first point, because I think it's applicable here. If our condition before conversion is bleak, if we are as dead in our sin as Paul, then we never earned our salvation in the first place. And so we are totally reliant on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We never earned it, and so then we have to ask ourselves, how could we ever unearn it? God is at work in saving sinners who do not deserve his grace and in transforming us more into the likeness of his son. Like the horse cart, he gives us a new purpose. He makes us different on the inside and he puts the owner's own stamp on it of the Holy Spirit. Two final points of application just to finish. We somewhat glanced over the role of Ananias in this story, but he has an incredibly important role here. And he actually has a very natural response as well to God's call. See, Ananias is called to go to Saul and to place his hands on him to restore his sight. He's calling Ananias to go and to bear witness to Jesus. But his response to that is fear, and actually he has much more right to be fearful than we do. But every believer has been given that call to bear witness to Jesus, to be ambassadors of Christ and sharers of this amazing news that we have in the gospel. Maybe we think back to that conversation that we've had with our barber or had with our friend at work where it was just totally shot down. Or maybe we think about a brother or a sister or a mom and dad who are just totally uninterested in the slightest. Maybe we look at these people and think that they're just lost causes. But Saul's conversion was sudden and it was unexpected. If the chief of sinners was converted, then can I tell you that there is hope for your evangelism and more importantly, there is hope for those people that you have in your mind. Will you go to share the gospel with them even if they seem far off? 
And then for those of you who have maybe sat here wallowing in that first point about our sin, will you submit to Jesus and trust in him? Will you trust in his perfect life and his sacrificial death on your behalf? He offers us overflowing grace in himself. And he offers not to just leave us in our sin, but to save us from it, to forgive us for it, for it and to transform us into his image. There is forgiveness in Jesus for those who haven't yet turned to him. And then a million times after for our faltering walk with him thereafter. Will you trust that his grace is sufficient for you as well? If this passage has struck a chord with you, impacted you in any way, that I would love to have a chat with you after the service. Uh, I'll be standing out at the front uh, after our final hymn. But before we sing that final hymn, can I ask you to join with me in prayer now? Father, you did a powerful thing in the life of Saul. And we give you so much thanks that you give us this as an example to show the extent of your grace for any one of us. We recognize we fall so short that we are sinners who, deserve, who do not deserve your grace. And yet you offer us forgiveness through your son, Jesus. Father, for any of us who have seen this for the first time this morning, who've become aware of our sin, would it comfort them to know that this offer of salvation is for them? That they're welcomed into your family and will be loved and accepted completely because of Christ's life and death in their place. We cannot earn it, but we don't need to. Thank you for such grace. And God, for those of us who trust in your son, would you continue to transform us more into his likeness? You have given us an example to see nobody is beyond your grace. So would our response to this message show we believe that? Would we share the gospel with those who seem far off? And would we know your grace is sufficient for ourselves too? In Jesus' name, amen.